Welcome back, Warriors. Tansei Sego, Ani Buju, Kuenin Deluizi Pam Palmeter, and I'm the host of this show, The Warrior Life. This podcast is a show about living the warrior life, a lifestyle that focuses on decolonizing our minds, bodies, and spirits, while at the same time revitalizing our cultures, traditions, laws, and governing practices. And it's also about asserting, living, and defending our sovereignty all over Turtle Island. And while we are often weighed down with constant attacks on our nations, our cultures, and our identities, we always seem to find the strength to carry on. That is something that our ancestors continue to pass down generation to generation. And even more than that, we have this inner spirit and determination to never give up, even in times of crisis. And one of the things I admire most about our nations is how we stand in defense of one another and come to each other's aid when we need it the most. Over the last few weeks, Bearskin Lake First Nation in Ontario has been in a state of crisis. They are an OG Cree First Nation located about 400 kilometers north of Sioux Lookout in Ontario, whose community has been severely impacted by the COVID, uh, by the COVID pandemic. With rising numbers of people who are sick and others who have to isolate, even community services are being impacted. Today's guest didn't just sit back and monitor the social media feeds about this worsening condition. She decided to take action. Tanya Cameron is a well-known grassroots activist who has been working with Indigenous land defenders and water protectors and people advocating to end murder to missing Indigenous women and girls, to help children in foster care, residential school survivors. There isn't an issue that Tanya hasn't been working on in close partnership with politicians, grassroots leaders, elders, everybody on the ground. I have been following her work for a very long time. She is part of Indigenous resistance, resurgence, revitalization, and everything that's good about our nations. And she does all of this community work and advocacy while holding down only two full-time jobs, of course. Welcome to the Warrior Life Podcast, Tanya. Hi, Pam. Thanks for the invite. Oh, I'm so excited to have you here. But before we get into it, even before we started, I was like, look at your background. That is such amazing artwork. Who has done all this art? Uh, my kids are pretty artistic. So you'll see the, the cedar feathers here. Those were made by my son in lieu of a summer job. With the pandemic, he couldn't uh, get a regular job. So he started creating the cedar feathers. And there's more artwork here that he made. And then my daughter paints. So just behind my desk, the colorful one. That's my daughter did that. And there's a glare on it right now, but she did a, a portrait of her and her brother and sister. Oh my gosh, it's so beautiful. Oh, I mean, and it's just surrounded by family and art and expression. Well, listen, before we jump right into things, perhaps you would like to introduce yourself in the way that you like to and maybe talk about where you're from. Sure. So my community is Nisachuan and Anishinaabe Nation here in beautiful Treaty 3. And I'm currently living in Kenora. I'm originally from Winnipeg, uh, had left there after uh, I graduated high school and has been in Northwestern Ontario ever since. Um, like you said, I have a couple of jobs and, and I've been blessed with a wonderful career. Um, about maybe 25, 26 years of working for the Indigenous communities in Northwestern Ontario. So I, I'm very passionate and ambitious when it comes to uh, helping my people. And it reflects in my career, it reflects in the community activism and organizing that I do. Oh my gosh, does it ever. And not just in the stuff that people see. You're one of those people that do just as much work behind the scenes. All the stuff that's going on in the background that no one ever sees and maybe never hears about, but where lots of the real action takes place. And so I've, you know, I've followed you and your work for a long time, like during I don't know more and all of those things. I mean, you've just you've never given up. And, you know, I really admire the work that you do. I mean, your passion for our people really comes through. You're one of those 
natural born leaders who do a lot of work, make a lot of probably a lot of personal sacrifices, you know, to support our communities. And I'm wondering, you know, for people who don't know you, uh, if you could share maybe some of your life journey, like, you know, what you've done along the way, some of the things, whether it's your education or work or different projects you've worked on. Yeah, sure. You know, I, I think my my community activism and my public speaking really is from from my youth and my parents always encouraged me to use my voice when when I needed to speak up. Uh, I was one of the youngest presenters 30 years ago at the Winnipeg uh, Aboriginal Justice Inquiry, and that's where I first met uh, the now uh, the 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 Honorable uh, Marie Sinclair. Uh, I was just like 13 years old at, and making a presentation at the AJI. Um, I also my parents always read the news and always watched the news. So we would have an evening at the table with, with newspapers back, like back in the old days where we read newspapers. And so we'd read things and we'd talk about things. And um, I believe I was about 16 years old when I saw what there was um suicide crisis in the young people population at Pekanjigam. And I remember just talking out loud how I wish me and some friends can go up and, and you know uh, you know talk with them play volleyball do something to to sort of um i don't know be an example or or lend an ear um to the young people that were struggling up there and my mom just started asking me questions well how would you do this and how would you do that and uh, you know you have to fly up there and i said well i'd fundraise and i do this and um so she just listened to a plan that I that I rattled off, and then um, that weekend she made phone calls to friends and and family in the northern communities because my dad is from um, Sachigo Lake, which is not far from Bearskin Lake, and and then she said, okay, well let's do your plan, and and that's exactly what I did. She showed me how she raised the money and got the charter. Uh, we I got equipment. We went up and we did recreation activities. We did bonfires and sharing and singing even. So that really sparked something in me. And I, I've carried that through all my my young adulthood and, and now my my middle agehood. <laughs> so I, I really I really do have a passion for people, uh, our indigenous people. And I know it sounds corny when I when I say it, but I really, really do feel it. I never take anything lightly. Like I I get asked to do a lot of things. But I, I, I go to prayer. I, I give it a lot of thought and consideration. And sometimes I think, well, it's a really good idea, but it's it's not my path to walk. It's someone else's. So I would encourage them. I'd give them advice on how I would approach things. But other times I really feel it in my spirit that I, I got to step up and I got to lend my voice to it. And, um, and I pray. Like we pray all the time. Like every time we even go out. My husband left for uh, Sulacout this morning to do a supply run for Bearskin Lake, and and we prayed, you know. So we we're very spiritual people, and and we feel motivated to to help. Well, and what I have always admired about you is, you know, lots of us feel passionate or hopeful or inspired, uh, but sometimes people stay in the wishful or the hoping side of things. But here, even from a really young age. You were saying, you know, here's this crisis, this suicide crisis. Here's what I would like to do. And here's how I would make that happen. As opposed to, I, I just wish somebody would do something about this. Oh, I hope that happens someday. You're, And I really love the story about how your mom actually encouraged that. It's like, well, what's your plan? And let's put this plan into action and that it actually, you actually do it and you have that kind of impact. And you know, the other thing I really appreciate about what you just said is when you work in this area, you get asked to do a lot of things, far more, a thousand things more than you could ever possibly do. And some of us struggle to try to do it all. And of course we can't, um, but it's how grounded you seem to be in ceremony to be able to say, okay, here's what I can give my effort to, and, and these are the things that I can't right now. How important is that, that kind of balance and really making sure that 
you know, this particular path or project or issue is the one that you need to work on and to be okay when something else is not yours to work on. Yeah. So, and, and that's the thing, right? So raising a family like through Idle No More, my kids were just small. Uh, and again, they were my biggest helpers. Um, so, so that time plus working a regular full-time job, um, hearing what people have to share, hearing people's concerns, um, some of the struggles that are happening. And, you know, I, I, I try to be thoughtful. I try to be uh, caring in all requests. Uh, and if I have to let someone, of course, I, I feel like I want to do it all, but I also know that having balance in life is very important. Uh, a few times I let myself run so ragged that I, I uh, neglect my health and then I get sick. And um, my parents, you know, my late father was always, you got to pace yourself. You got to pace yourself. You know, you got to uh, remember that your energy has to be for your family as well. So, and I'm a little older now, so I get it, you know? So I realize that I have my limits and I will do the best that I can with, with what I can. And I think my activism is only made possible by the help of my husband and my kids and my extended family who've lifted hundreds and hundreds of pounds of potatoes for me, who carried boxes from here and there, who have shipped, who have shopped. Like it, I would not be able to do half the things I've done without the help of my family. So we're, we're a helping family. And um, I, I took up, uh, I'm just gonna share. I took up a, a lot of, um, I worked for Indigenous Sport and Wellness and we did sport camps in the far fly-in uh, communities. And when I went up there, I thought, okay, I'm not going to go empty handed. I'll take my supplies and my equipment. But I did uh, a shoe drive or my summer students did a shoe drive and a clothing drive. For, uh, and we took them all up to three of the flying communities. And someone commented, because I post everything on social media, uh, someone commented and said, you're continuing the work of your father. And it's so good to see, because that's what my dad would do. He used to, my parents would... Um, always get requests because we lived in the city. Can you look for clothing? Can you look for shoes? Can you look for, and then we'd work to to send them up. My parents would drive all the way to Pickle Lake, put it on a plane and send it up north. So uh, there's things that you just don't get up in the far north, especially when people want to have weddings or special events. So my parents would always do what they can to get things up there. So, and I didn't realize I was doing that. And I thought, well, my dad would be proud of me. Yeah. Of course. And what I like about this is really just how you, you don't have to go to school and take a course to learn. Here's step one, two, three of, you know, how to do these things. It's literally how you're raised, the values that you're surrounded by, a family who is very clearly giving, and then you do the same thing. And then it just obviously your kids are going to be in the same way. And then it it kind of expands out in circles. And then all of the people and friends and family that help you and then so on and so forth. And, and I think that's the best, really the best part about our communities. And one of the things I noticed now, correct me if I'm wrong. Um, one of the interesting things I thought is, you know, the potato story that you were getting these potatoes. And I'd, I'd love to hear more about that. And I also want to hear a little bit about um, your focus on women's menstrual products, because sometimes it's something, oh, you know, people don't want to talk about. But these are very important things for women in communities, as you know, remote communities or communities that are in crisis or people that are living in impoverished conditions that we often don't think about. People will think about food and water, but we don't think about the dignity of women and girls who need those kind of products. And I'm just wondering if you can talk about, you know, how how did you, what were you doing with the potatoes? And then what made you focus on the menstrual products for women? Yeah, sure. So, uh, so just to back it up, uh, I grew up in, um, in, like I said, in Winnipeg with my family. Uh, we didn't have a lot of money. My dad was basically uh, raised in one of the Indian hospitals, the TB Indian hospital. So he had a lot of scarring, so he couldn't work. Uh, my mom had all his kids and um, worked when she can, where she can. So when I think about it now, I, I know that my parents did a lot of work to keep food on a table and keep us clothed. Um, 
when my mom tells me more stories now and I think, wow, that, that was poverty to be in a situation where, um, my parents brought us kids into the room and, and this, my dad was really quiet and he's like, you know what? I, we're going to pray. We're going to pray because we have no food. We don't have any supper. And, and I know he was so uh, hurt and he said, you know, I starved as a child. He said, so I always promised that I would feed my children and couldn't. So we all said, we're going to pray. So we started to pray and um, the phone rang. But when we're in prayer, we don't bother anything and it would stop. Then the phone would ring again. And, and finally, my mom's like, who's so so persistent to call? So she got up while we uh, the rest of us were praying. And it was a family member on her side of the family and said that uh, bring the family over. Um, we have something for you guys. So we all got up and, and got to the vehicle and we, we drove over to Uncle John's house and he had a, a deer in the garage. And he's like, you know, he said, my sons went out hunting and, and I thought, well, I'm going to go give one to the Beardy family. And, um, and I don't know if my parents ever told, <laughs> ever told, um, uh, Uncle John, what we were praying for, why we weren't answering the phone. So um, we struggled uh, financially. Um, I grew up, my whole family, we grew up on secondhand clothes. Uh, we got one new school outfit and one new pair of shoes. Uh, so I appreciate the struggles of my parents. And I know um, having limited access to food and even menstrual products, uh, with me and uh, my mom and and two other sisters in the home, those were real issues that we struggled with growing up. And my dad always made sure that we help, especially when it comes to food that um, that we help our neighbors. So I'm um, the, the potatoes um, at the start of the pandemic. You know, in 2020, spring of 2020, um, there was a whole bunch of panic buying in the grocery stores in Kenora enough so that people were like surprised at the bare shelves in the grocery stores and I just thought that's that's it's scary that's uh scary how sensitive Canada's food network system is and I thought it was tough here in Kenora but then I started seeing people in the flying communities posting their long lineups, posting that they had to ration items in the grocery stores to try to make sure all the families got something that they need for their home. And I, I really thought that was just an eye opener. And on Facebook Marketplace, I saw an ad for 50 pound bag of potatoes for $15. And I really thought, wow, that's that's weird and 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 but it's also a really good deal and that was like just outside of Winnipeg so a two-hour drive um, I responded to the ad and they said they have so much the lady said it's my brother's farm it's with the lockdown he's got a whole warehouse of potatoes and he doesn't want to go under so we're going to try to sell what what we can to the public so me being me, I posted on social media, hey, I'm going to run to this farm on Saturday. Does anyone want a bag of potatoes? It's 50 pounds, 15 bucks. I did not know I'd be coming home with 10,000 pounds of potatoes. Oh my <laughs> goodness. I had to tell people, like, I'm out of room. I was taking my husband's truck, my SUV, a trailer we had. Uh, two other First Nations had contacted me. And it's like, where are you getting these potatoes? So they brought their trucks. And, yeah, so it was... It was a really, really big thing. So at the end, within 10 months, um, I think it was 185,000 pounds of potatoes, the equivalent of six semi-trucks of potatoes coming into northwestern Ontario. It started off with here in Kenora, then it went to uh, Fort Francis, Dryden, Red Lake, Sulacout, and over 30 First Nations. So it was it's just incredible. an incredible feat. Yeah. It was. And I'm like, you know, I think only one time we actually had a forklift with us. So my kids, my sister-in-law, my husband were tossing 50 pound bags from the big semi truck into people's vehicles as they did a roll and no contact pickup. But um, it was good. Like we were really meeting the real needs of the community and not not just indigenous people. There were a lot of 
families who had lost their jobs, uh, people contacting me saying, you know, I, I'm, I'm really embarrassed, but we need help and would try to tell me their stories. And I'm like, you don't even have to tell me your story. You just tell me you, you need these potatoes. You're going to get these potatoes. So, wow. and a lot of people were donating and I was so amazed at the generosity, especially in, in, at the start of the pandemic, it was scary. It was pretty lean in the grocery stores. And I ended up helping three farms in Manitoba who really needed to offload their potatoes. Um, they were struggling. I, after the second potato run, I was featured in the Globe and Mail and two other farms called, can you help us? So it was it was quite the wow. feat. Well, and, and so that's the thing again, another lesson that, you know, I hope people hear from this is you hear you were trying to help and you end up, there's these concentric circles of help. So you're helping to identify, you know, this need, grocery stores bear, trying to provide potatoes. Potatoes are healthy, full of vitamins and minerals. You know, the, this, this will keep people fed. And you, you're also ended up helping the farmers, which ends up helping their families, which ends up helping, you know, concentric circles again of people and, and they would have money to buy something that they need and so on and so forth. So it's, it's really, really important that we all come together in a time of crisis instead of some of the examples of the hoarding that we saw, like your story was just so important. And you would never think it's all centered around potatoes. <laughs> and I'm sure you never imagined in a million years you'd be having all of these pounds of potatoes. I, I would never imagine that people would be calling me the potato lady. Um, <laughs> yesterday, I went. my daughter and I went into town and we went to one of the stores to get the work gloves for Bearskin Lake. And the lady was ringing me up. I give her my status card, right, for the tax exemption. And the young lady at the till is like, oh, you're the potato lady. <laughs> so, so even the young people have heard, heard that nickname. So I, I don't think I'll, I'll ever live that nickname down. <laughs> well, it's a good story to be known and associated with. That's for sure. Um, one of the things, you know, of all the things that you do, and there's just so many, and I know they change and evolve over time, but... You know, I'm, I'm quite impressed that you, you managed to hold down two jobs during a pandemic, which is very difficult on people financially, mental health wise, physical health wise, just all of the uncertainty. And, and here you are, even with all the added pressure of the pandemic, working in these two very important positions. And I'm wondering if you wouldn't mind sharing a little bit about what you do for Shoal Lake 40 and the Elder Care Center, because I want to talk more about Elder Care Centers after, but for sure, these two jobs that you're in. Oh, yes, for sure. So I work as the training coordinator for Shoal Lake 40. They have uh, a couple of projects that they're um, getting off the ground. It's been a little slow because of the pandemic and, and the limitations on, on training sizes and whatnot, but we're moving forward with the plan that the community has. Um, I recently was asked to take on the role as the chief executive officer for the WIGWAS elder and senior care home here in Kenora. And I, I was so happy to be asked to be um, the, the CEO there. It was 10 years ago while I was working for the Kenora Chiefs Advisory as the long-term care coordinator uh, with nine First Nations. I was asked by the ED to conduct a study on having an Indigenous long-term care home within the region for our elders. So that project was almost a year in the making. I sat with many, many elders in our nine First Nations. We either had a formal um, circle, um, uh, research questions. Um, sometimes we just had met informal within a sharing circle to talk about what the needs are and what a vision, what their vision would look like if we did uh, get the funding for a long-term care home. And so we did the report and we did uh, uh, a, plan, a pitch to the provincial government and federal governments for it. And then I went on to go do other work um, but the ED, Joe Barnes, stayed on and, and he held firm to that idea that we really need a um, long-term care home for uh, First Nations elders. And so they recently, in the fall, just October 2021, 
the Kenora Chiefs Advisory purchased the Birchwood long-term care home right here in Kenora. And they also confirmed funding to build a new care home building in Wajishkinigam. And so when I got the call offering me the job and show like 40 leadership were good to, to share my time. Um, <laughs> and that's where we just jumped right into it. So I, I've always been just grateful for opportunities that come my way. Uh, people see a skill, my skill set, people know um, what I'm capable of. So they'll reach out to me and ask me to take on work with them. And, and I love it, you know, and again, the, I also make, um, I'm very, uh, a very prayerful woman. So before I take on a role, I'll, I'll need time to, to pray. And, and I, I, sometimes I just feel it right away in my spirit. Yeah. Yes, what I wanted to. So, so I, but I, I got to face myself not to say yes to everything at the moment it's offered, but uh, <laughs> yeah, that's, I, I really wanted <laughs> It'd be hard to say no to working with elders. I think elders and kids. I mean, that's just a oh, soft spot for me. <laughs> um, and so I wanted to follow up on that, especially when I saw that, you know, you were the CEO of this elder care home, because, as you know, during the pandemic all across the country, but especially here in Ontario, it was revealed just how neglectful and harmful long-term care homes were these privatized long-term care homes all across the province how many elders uh canadian elders were dying because of the pandemic because of some of them weren't you know clean they weren't getting enough food they weren't uh, getting enough attention they literally had to bring in the military so you know then that got me thinking about indigenous elders because sometimes indigenous elders are in care homes sometimes they're in like elder specific housing on reserve sometimes they're within our larger families depending on you know what their health condition needs are but i'm wondering what you think about you know the importance of us assuming jurisdiction over care for our elders so that they would never be a part of that kind of system that wreaked so much havoc Mm-hmm. So, you know, um, over at the Wigwas Care Home, uh, we issued a press release saying that there was an outbreak over the holidays. Um, and of course, we follow all the provincial ministry guidelines. But in partnership with the Kenora Chiefs Advisory, uh, we actually went on above and beyond. We recalled uh, the Kenora Chiefs Advisory. We called a lot of their workers to come in and provide that extra care because COVID wasn't just impacting the residents, it was also impacting our, our staff. So um, to go above and beyond and fill those, those the work, um, the staffing positions to ensure that our elders and our seniors, the needs were being taken care of. Uh, and one beautiful thing that I thought is like, we were, we had a conversation one evening about the cooks. I think we were gonna be no cooks because of COVID. And I then we're like, well, maybe we could reach out to some of the restaurants if they had to close their kitchens. And I thought, well, let's reach out to our First Nations because we have a lot of culinary um, program graduates. We have uh, some some cooks in our First Nations. So I called my chief, uh, Lorraine Copaness in Nisachuan, and she worked it out immediately. She contacted the cooks in the in our our community, and with no hesitation, three cooks said we're coming in and you know what they're probably just getting off shift right now and you know it, and that's going above and beyond right uh, of going um taking care of our people and utilizing the skills that we have in our first nations communities um i think they were just over overlooked oftentimes but truly we we have psws we have nurses we have trained cooks in the first nations communities and they shouldn't be an oversight they shouldn't be an afterthought when we're looking at what the needs are in the care home and to be able to tap those resources from our first nations and bring them into Kenora to, into the care home i think that was just incredible and i was just talking to them earlier today i'm like i want to do a shout out to you guys please send me a photo um the elders we're going to be so grateful that you stepped in and and there's requirements right when you're working in a long-term care home and of who which staff the what credentials they have and and our people had it. They came in skilled. They came in and, and took over and provided the meals three times a day for all. And I'm talking about they show up at 6 a.m. and they don't leave till 8 p.m. So that's wow. kind of right there. 
again, another example of when there's a need, instead of looking outward, there's like so many people in our communities. And, you know, the government has always tried to assume control over situations and decide what the solutions are. But when we're the ones handling it, it's like, wouldn't you want, you know, social workers and elder care workers and cooks and volunteers all from our own communities? I mean, just so much more impactful. So that's a good story. And, and I'm wondering if you can also, you know, talk a little bit about for Indigenous peoples, why protecting our elders is, has this like double layer of importance when you think about them in terms of being knowledge keepers or language keepers. And that's exactly it. They are our knowledge keepers. Um, I know our priority listing, like I, 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 wrote, I wrote the pandemic plan for Nisatchewan, uh, my home community, and we identified who our priority homes, um, like our priority geographic would be, or demographic, pardon me. And of course that that's our elders because they carry the teachings and, and are sharing the teachings right now. They share, they hold the language and are sharing the language. Um, it, it's, it's, it's so important to take care of our most vulnerable and that's our elders and also our, our children. Um, they, they complete a community. And when a community loses an elder, um, it doesn't matter what family, what political uh, positions you have in your community, everyone stands together to grieve the loss of that elder. And it's, it's a beautiful thing. Like uh, in any community, no matter how large, how small, we know right away we've got to protect our elders. And I've heard that constantly. Uh, with what's happening in, in Bearskin Lake. Like that's that's who we're there to protect. And um, it's a beautiful thing. I, I think I think the love that we have as, as a nation for our elders, it, it, it comes through in our programming, in our policy, in our education, uh, all these things that, um, that shape our, our people, right? From our childhood, it's the role of the elder. Yeah. And, and if you think of all of the generations of, you know, colonial laws and policies that have tried to wipe out our languages, our teachings, our ceremonies, it just makes our elders who hold these knowledges so critically important. Um, and, and I love how you tie it to the children, too, because they're the ones who learn from the elders in our extended families. And so it's really just important for everyone. Um so, you know, one of the reasons why I wanted to talk to you, I've wanted to talk to you for a long time, uh, but one of the reasons why I wanted to talk to you is because I wanted our listeners and our viewers to hear about Bearskin Lake First Nation, what's going on. Some people are aware of what's going on. Uh, I was following it over the holidays and, of course, your work and... Um, other people, you know, were sharing social media about things that were happening. But maybe for people who aren't aware, maybe you could tell us a little bit about what 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 is the situation in Bearskin Lake First Nation, and how did you come to be involved in helping to address it? Yeah. So uh, as of today, um, the population is about four hundred people. Fifty percent uh, of the population are now infected with COVID. Uh, and this is leadership. These are the pandemic workers or, or, or even the regular band office staff. So essentially a whole group of community workers are in isolation, which meant other able-bodied adults that are tested negative were called up to help the community in any capacity that they can. And so I, we were home for the holidays, my family and I. Unfortunately, my youngest, when he came home from university in, in uh, University of Manitoba, he came home, uh, was feeling a little off. And a, his friend called, who they, they all got rides back to Kenora and together. And one of them tested positive for COVID and he was quite sick. So they called all his buddies to say, hey, I, I tested positive, you need to get tested. So Christmas, we went, my son went for isolation right away in, in our home. And um, he tested positive on Christmas day. And I'm like, okay, we're home. We're, we're, we're not going anywhere. We're gonna try to overcome this sickness. And then I turned to social media and I started to see, oh, 
Bear Skin Lake has 12 positive. And then the next morning it was 34. And I thought, oh my gosh, that's fast. And I could see public posts on the Facebook pages. Uh, everyone has to go get tested if you've been, and it was Chris, it was just past Christmas. So everyone was together and socializing and visiting for, for the holidays. And it would just skyrocketed from there. And it was um, December 30th that, and feeling helpless and seeing moms posting that they need firewood and parents saying that they need groceries in their homes, um, asking who has a humidifier or who has this and that that they could lend. And I, I just felt so helpless seeing what was happening in that community. And I reached out to Saul Mamakwa, and he's the MPP for Kiwetno. And I said, Saul, I, I want to help. Uh, can you ask the chief if it's okay for me to take a collection for Bearskin Lake? And I'm going to get groceries to the community. And he's like, okay, let me let me ask. And within five minutes, the the I got the go ahead. And and then I I, I text. Um, store manager at Fresh Market Foods in Sulacout. They helped me tremendously with the potatoes into the, getting them into the far north communities. And no hesitation there either. They're like, yeah, we'll help. We'll use our COVID subsidy to ship the, the groceries up to the community. So on New Year's, New Year's Eve, the morning of New Year's Eve, I made my post. I, I said, I'm doing collection. If you can help, please help. And, and I know asking over the holidays for a donation is not the best time. Um, and I thought, well, if I could raise four or $5,000, then it's worth it. Like it, we could be a help with that much groceries. By noon, we had reached 5,000. And I thought, wow, I asked my sister, my sister-in-law, like, do you think I could get to 10,000? And she's like, you're going to go past 10,000. And then that night we wrapped up with $11,000. And um, I, I was just shocked. I, I was really pleased with the results. And so many other people said, I wish I could do more, or I felt helpless watching this on the news as, as was unfolding. And so when I did my, my I do my bookkeeping constantly. Um, to date, we've raised uh, we spent and shipped up uh, groceries, air purifiers, and today a log splitter and other items. Um, Twenty-two thousand three hundred twenty-eight that we spent on 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 all that. So I have about thirty-seven hundred left, and Canadian Tire is sending me five thousand dollars in gift cards to buy more supplies for the community. Um, for the groceries that I sent up, I sent up. $12,000 worth of groceries. The shipping for that was $5,300 because it's, you got to charter the plane to get all that food up there. Um, and then I, before I, for the grocery list, I just posted on the community page and I said, can you send me your grocery items? You know, you tell me what you need. And then that's how the whole list was created by asking the people direct. And I also asked the other day, like if I'm able to shop at Canadian Tire, what mm -hmm. do you like what supplies so yeah, i have supply yeah, exactly. list right, right from the workers the duct tape the work gloves extension cords um uh, hampers dog food because when they deliver food to the doorstep the dogs are attacking it um yeah just just everything that they need and and that's what i'm working on so canadian tire confirmed that it's on its way so once that arrives and i'll take the balance of funds whatever money else comes in um or do a big shop. My brothers and sisters are, are ready to shop and help me with their trucks. I got another friend, uh, Larry Cavistra Jr. He he messaged and said, you need a truck, I'll take your stuff to Sulacout. So, and, and donors stepped up to cover the the flights because again, those are thousands of dollars in, in, in freight fees, uh, fees, sorry. And they, they stepped up to cover. So I was so appreciative. I sent up that log splitter today along with a big big box of natural products and um the work gloves and warm clothes so that was covered by sponsor and i don't that charter must have been at least six thousand dollars 
And that's the thing, like a lot of Canadians who don't live or travel in the North. I mean, when I was doing work in Northern First Nations, it is three times as expensive to travel to the North than it is to go to Florida or to Hawaii or to go to Vancouver, like literally flying into the North and then just to try to ship anything, the costs are just exorbitant. So it's just so amazing to hear. It's one thing to get the groceries. But to get them there could cost even more than the groceries themselves. So that's that's incredible. So, um, I, I, yeah, I, I saw your tweet online about, you know, where things are right now. Are you still collecting funds? Yes, I'm still collecting funds. I, I think I'll wrap it up early next week. Mm -hmm. I'll collect what I can and it'll all go to to supplies and I'll do another run to Sulacote, and that's about a two and a half hour drive from here in Kenora. We'll get the items up into a plane. Again, a sponsor stepped up and said, this is the, the information you need to send your, your supplies. So, you know what, every dollar helps. Some people gave $10, $11, and you know what, all that pulled together has impact. Like, it don't feel bad if you're, you know, not a $100 donation, like every dollar, every dollar helps someone oh my gosh yes and so the the contact information that i saw online was this email tanya at tanyacameron.com to send donations by an e-transfer or on paypal you're also tanya cameron 807 on paypal so are these still both good links that people can send donations directly Yes, yes. So I've been getting uh, a lot of Americans using PayPal's uh, because they don't EMT. So yeah, those are the two, my email and the PayPal link. Well, then we're going to make sure that we blast out that information too and just keep it going because, you know, as people hear about it, the first question is always, what can I do? And I think that's, you know, that's literally your motto. What can I do about any situation? Um, <laughs> So I guess, you know, as we're wrapping up here, I wanted to also talk about, you know, advice you might have for Canadians or even other First Nations, you know, people like myself who hear about something in the media and you want to help. What are some of the protocols around, you know, taking action and to helping a community? Um, because I, I understand, you know, I've been, you know, we had a little bit of a discussion before this about some of the protocols you took, but I'm wondering if you can share some of those. Cause I think it's really important that people just don't barge ahead and assume they know what's wanted or needed or how to do it. Yeah, so we always have to make sure that we don't take a colonized approach when we wanna help any community or any family or, you know, whatever the need is. So I always get permission from the group that I want to support. Uh, in this case, in this case, it was reaching out to the leadership, and getting permission, let them know that this is how I do things in terms of if I take up a collection, I'll make a donors list and I'll post it. I will get all the receipts, scan it, and send it to them so they know where every dollar went. Um, and being respectful of that uh, and then respectful to the to the giver I, I want to be accountable to them as well and then in terms of learning what the supplies are learning what foods they want I, I just directly ask the people because I never want to assume what I think is good for me and my family is good for their families like we you know some have special dietary requirements um some have a lot of kids and, and kids love to snack. So what are the snacks that they want? So I, I took direction directly from the families and, and the elders and the parents of, of what they'd like to see. Even the supply list or all the workers on the ground, they know what's best, uh, what kind of supplies they need. So they tell me and uh, I'll, I'll do my best to fill, fill that order. And it's about respect. You know, we, we want to help and, and we, but you got to do things in a good way. Um, you don't want to see donations tossed aside if I go and think what I think is a good thing for them, um, for anyone. And, and I've helped numerous organizations like our, our local shelter, um, other communities, young people. I'll never assume and, and, and give them that, empower them with some of the, the decisions in, in the projects that you take on for our community. And it's, it's respectful. And, and I try to be as respectful as much as possible. 
I really like how you've done it. You've, you know, you were posting the amounts, but also pictures. Like we actually get to see the help in action, you know, these big boxes and, and the loaders and, you know, everything that's happening. It's, it's showing that, you know, the help is really going somewhere. And I think when you follow those kinds of protocols so that, you know, the chief has a direct hand in what's going on, they have agency in that also helps prevent you know, unfortunately, there are people out there who are fraudulent and set up fraudulent emails or fraudulent PayPal's. And so when everybody knows what's going on, we all know, here's the people that are doing this. Here's how you know that the money will go to a good place. It's well needed in the community and it's, it's having, you know, such a huge impact. So I really appreciate, you know, the advice around don't don't take this colon the colonized approach, you know, that governments, you know, we know what's best for you and here's what we're gonna do, whether you like it or not, and despite the outcomes. And we don't want Canadians or anyone with good intentions to to kind of follow that approach either. So um is there any other is there anything else that we can do to help? I mean, we we've got the two uh, ways we can send money by Tanya at TanyaCameron.com or we can use PayPal at TanyaCameron807. Is there anything else that we can do to help, you know, shine a light on this or any other ways that we can help? Yeah, I think uh, it would great. It would be great if Canadians can get in touch with their local member of parliament and tell them that they need to send military support, boots on the ground, the actual physical labor of the work that needs to be done in the community, uh, especially any First Nation community that's experiencing a COVID outbreak, they, they need support. And, and it's great that the donations are coming in, but we need government to step up and, and do that heavy lifting. And anyone can send an email, anyone can post on social media to, to you know, nudge our, our uh, federal government into action for the community. Yeah, sometimes just speaking up, all of the public pressure is enough. And that doesn't cost anything. That's the thing. You know, there are people who can can do the donations and they should. And, you know, after this podcast, I'm going to make sure that I send, you know, donations. But there's also free ways you can help, you know, sharing your tweets, you know, sharing the call outs that the chief is making when the, when the chief or the community posts a letter saying we need this help. It's echoing those calls if we're being, you know, um, engaged in the media or if we're talking or if we're sharing like all of those things make a huge difference. We know how quickly even TikToks and and Instagram reels can go viral when we're calling for attention for these issues. So I, I think it's important you know, like what you're saying, Canadians don't forget, there's so many free ways to also help. And that public pressure is one of the most powerful things to get governments to act when they're a little slow. Yeah, that's, <laughs> exactly, it. that's exactly it. And, and you know, people have power in, in the money that what they're able to offer. People have power in their words. Send that email, do that retweet. Uh, one of the things I found so funny this morning is I did, posted a picture of my husband leaving for Silicote and he's like, there goes the Res Cross. And I, I, I was like, oh, that's a good name. That's, pretty that's cool. a good one. The Res Cross. Oh, well, I, I've never heard that one. And I, I love it. I love it. The Res Cross. Oh, that's awesome. Well, you know, Tanya, thank you for taking so much time. I know that you're, I mean, you've got two jobs, you've got a family, you've got all your community volunteer work, and you're organizing all of this. So I really appreciate that you took the time this like a whole hour of time to help us understand the importance of helping other people helping communities, because that help all goes around back and forth. And we really need it. In this pandemic, there are people and communities who really need this help. And you continue to light the way, Tanya. I don't know how you do it. I'm glad and hopeful that you keep taking care of yourself. But um, I really respect what you do. And, and thank you for sharing this. And I'll do my part to, you know, share this podcast and make a call out for donations and help too. And um, I you know, Tanya, you're really a, an inspiration for so many people. Thank you for everything that you do. Oh, thank you very much. 
And thank you to all of the Warrior Life podcast listeners and YouTube viewers for taking the time to learn more, not just for educational purposes or informational purposes, but for the purposes of taking action. This entire podcast, everything I do on my social media is about education for action. So when you learn something, what is it that you can do to contribute in a free way, in a monetary way, in a boots on the ground kind of way, because sometimes we need that as well. So always be thinking about that and make sure one of the most impactful things you can do is actually share this podcast. Use it as a teaching aid in your classrooms. Use it in your communities. You know, get the word out there. And I'll make sure also in the podcast description and in the video description that I'll post the links and these emails that I have been flashing on the screen where you can send your donations. And don't forget to support Indigenous creators, people, artists who are selling their work during the pandemic, people who are making videos, podcasts, um, who are writing books, who are doing artwork. All of these people are using their skills and talent to make this world a better place. Don't forget to support Indigenous creators whenever and however you can. And that's Canadians included. We want to see Canadians wearing our artwork or sharing in our work, just like we do other First Nations. So thank you so much, everybody, for listening. Thank you again, Tanya. Till next time, keep living a warrior life. Walaliag. <laughs>